The Harwell family are going to come up and bring our reading to us. Thank you. First reading is from Luke chapter 24, verses 44 to 49. He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written, the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. The second reading is from Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was still alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Acts 2, 1-13 When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, Visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hearing them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they've had too much wine. A freshman at Eagle Junior High School won the prize for the Greater Idaho, Idaho Falls Science Fair on the 28th of April 1997. He was attempting to show how conditioned we have become as people to alarmist um, junk science, if you like, and the way that can spread fear throughout our communities and our environment. And in his project, he urged people to sign a petition demanding stricter control or even total elimination of the chemical dihydrogen monoxide. 
dihydrogen monoxide. And he cited plenty of reasons why you must get rid of this dangerous substance. For example, for example, dihydrogen monoxide can cause excessive sweating, vomiting. It's a major component in acid rain. It can cause severe burns in its gaseous state. Accidental inhalation can kill you. It decreases effectiveness of, the, of brakes of cars and buses and vehicles and has been found in the tumours of many cancer patients. He asked 50 people if they supported the ban of this chemical and 43 of them said yes. Six were undecided and only one of them knew that that chemical was H2O, water. The title of his winning prize project was How Gullible Are We? Fear. Fear. Fear is a God-given gift. He gives us fear. We're taught, in fact, to fear him. We should have a respect, a holy respect for who God is. That's important because God is dangerous. He is the creator of this universe. He has incredible power. And we must never take for granted that great power he has. In the army and in the military context where I served for 25 years, the first thing we teach a soldier or a member of the military when we give them a rifle is to fear that rifle. To fear that weapon. Because that weapon is dangerous. A lack of fear can lead to injury and even to death. Fear is very important. But fear can be dangerous when it's irrational fear. When it immobilises us and rather like the rabbit stuck in the headlamps of a car careering down the road towards it, rather than going to the left and the right, all the rabbit does is freezes. It remains right there in the path of that oncoming vehicle. And so it was fear that immobilised the disciples of Jesus. Following his death, the disciples were so fearful, they locked themselves away in a room in Jerusalem and were told they refused to let anyone else in. John, the apostle, who was one of those fearful fellows, he writes about this in John 20 and verse 19, and he says, on the evening of the first day of the week, that's Sunday, on the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. They had locked the doors. They had locked the world out. They were terrified of what was beyond that door. And yet, praise God, Jesus isn't limited by doors. He comes into that room, doesn't unlock the door, doesn't break the door down, he just comes through the door. And he says to them, peace be with you. He didn't berate them, didn't shout at them. He said, peace be with you. These were the men who were going to change the world. These are the men who will become the leaders of the early church. But they were found trembling behind locked doors, hiding the world and not engaging with it because something had to happen. They needed something to enable them to conquer their fears before they could conquer the world. And this is exactly what the day of Pentecost is all about. Pentecost literally means 50th. It comes 50 days after the Passover feast. And what happened in the 50 days on this particular year after Jesus died is he rose again after the third day. 
And for 40 days, he appeared to the disciples and other people in and around the area of Galilee and Jerusalem. For 40 days, he confirmed that he was alive. He even met with them and ate with them. For 40 days, he was there. And then on the last day, before he ascended up to heaven, he told them to stay. What was happening on that, that Pentecost festival, which is one of the most important festivals of the Jewish people, the three main festivals, and this was one of them, was that the, the city of Jerusalem was flooded with the world. On Pentecost, 2,000 years ago, the world came to Jerusalem. We read about that. Luke says, there were Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene. Visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. The world had come to Jerusalem. And at that point, when the world was with, uh, with, was with the disciples in Jerusalem, God enabled his people to speak. And that began the church. That's the birthday of the church. And we read later on in Acts how many people came to faith that day. And as those people who gathered in, in Jerusalem for that Pentecost celebration went back to their homes in different parts of the world, they took the gospel with them. It was part of God's plan 50 days after Jesus rose again. But he was going to conquer the world in this remarkable way. The world came to Jerusalem. But their disciples, the disciples of Jesus needed help. They needed enabling, they needed empowering if they were going to take on this mission. And they needed help with three things. They needed help with their wills, their mouths and their locations. Their wills, their mouths and their locations. And the first thing we see in this passage is the opening of their wills. The opening of their wills. They needed to be trained to learn some basic disciplines. You see, the word discipline comes from the Latin disciplus. And disciplus actually literally means in Latin pupil, pupilus, disciplus. That's how we get the word pupil. So in other words, a disciple basically is a student. They are a pupil. They are someone who needs to learn. And anyone who's been um, trying to train their children at home in, 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 during, the, during the period of the pandemic or those students who've been trying to pass exams know that the only way you can pass exams is with discipline. You've got to set times. You've got to read the books. You've got to revise. You've got to enable what's out there to come in here and come into your mind. It doesn't just happen like that. It requires discipline. You don't fall into being a disciple of Jesus Christ. It's not something you catch like a cold. You need to learn it. You need to be trained in it. You need to study it. And it takes time and practice. To become a disciple requires discipline. And the first thing the disciples needed to learn was simply to wait. To wait. Luke 24, verse 49, Jesus said, I'm going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. He later repeats this instruction. Luke, the writer of Acts, is also writing the book of um, Luke, the writer of the Gospel of Luke, is also writing the, apostle, um, the Acts of the Apostles. And so he says in 1 verse 4, Acts 1 verse 4, on one occasion, while Jesus was eating with them, he gave this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. 
they were told to stay until they were ready to go. To stay until they're ready to go. What's the very first lesson you teach a puppy? Is it to play dead? Is it to give you its paw? Is it to beg? What's the very first thing you teach a puppy? You teach a puppy to stay. Because by learning to stay, it's not only going to help that puppy, it's going to help you. That puppy could run out on the road. It could be run down very easily and die and become a victim of being savaged by another dog or something. You teach a puppy, first of all, to stay because that enables a puppy to function properly. And if our Canaan friends need to inherit this skill, disciples of Jesus Christ also need to learn how to stay, how to wait. Waiting is the first discipline of the Christian disciple. We're not just waiting for anything, we're waiting for a gift. And what is that gift? The gift is the precious, the presence of God. Jesus said, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father has promised. You know, this is the hardest thing to do in the 21st century. The reason I believe we have so many impoverished and weak Christians in the world in, in this day and age is because so few of them ever learn to wait upon the Lord. They're too busy. They're too busy running around the world, doing this, that and the other, chasing their tails or reading their, their phones, engaging with everyone else on social media but not engaging with their God. And they wonder why they've got no power in their life. They wonder why they're weak. They wonder why they struggle when trials and tribulations come along. They wonder why they, they don't have faith in their life, but they have fear in their life. Because they haven't ever learned to wait upon the Lord. The quiet time, the daily office, whatever you want to call it, the time of prayer is so critical, brothers and sisters. It's like you're breathing spiritually. You don't, if you miss your breakfast and your dinner and your lunch and your dinner, you feel weak. If you miss your daily time and connection with God by his Holy Spirit, you will become weak and impoverished. And eventually, after many months and even years, that faith will die. You cannot survive as a Christian without spiritual food, without being in the presence of your holy God. Prayer requires an act of will. It doesn't just happen. You have to plan it. You have to be disciplined as a disciple. Strong Christians are not born. They are made. In other words, you're involved in the process. It involves your will. It required the disciples the opening of their wills. and It requires the opening of our wills too. During World War II, a soldier was guarding an important installation and was heard to be talking out loud to someone when his sergeant um, came up behind him and leapt out and demanded to know who he was talking to. The soldier said, well, I, I was talking to God, Sarge. I was praying. Praying? Said the senior NCO, praying? Don't give me that, lad. You were talking to one of your muckers. You're not guarding this place properly. You weren't concentrating. You were disobeying a direct order. You were talking to one of your muckers. Suddenly, the captain came out of the darkness and walked up to the two of them and said, what's going on here? And the sergeant says, Jenkins, I want to put Jenkins on a, on a charge, Sarge. He was talking to one of the other blokes on guard. But he says he wasn't talking, he was praying, he was talking to God. He was praying. <laughs> I like your story, sir. Well, said the captain, let's test this young man. Jenkins, if you're praying, say a prayer for us now and we will judge. 
as the soldier began to pray. And he prayed for quite a long time and eventually the captain said, Amen, Jenkins, well done. There you are, Sergeant. If Jenkins hadn't practiced prayer many times, he would never have performed so well when it came to the review. You know, prayer is something that we learn and practice. And prayer, when we often pray for prayer to change our situations, prayer often does that first by changing us. That's the wonderful thing about prayer. It's important. One of the great litmus churches of a church's spirituality is the ability of that church to pray corporately, to be able to pray together in the public sphere for people to have the confidence of offering prayer. And when people can't do that, the question is why? Because you only can demonstrate prayer publicly, what you've practiced privately. And often the people say to me, I can't pray in public, is because they don't pray in private. They never practice. Conversation with God should be your natural to you as breathing is to you. It's just something you shouldn't even have to think about. Prayer needs to be practiced. We need to learn to wait upon the Lord. And that also includes receiving the Holy Spirit because Jesus told his disciples in Acts 1 verse 5, for John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. You know, baptism, again, is an act of will, isn't it? It takes courage to go down into the waters of baptism. It requires courage to declare Jesus as your Lord and Master. When I was in Cyprus in 2005, I ran a lively church on RAF Akateri called St Andrews, and it was a great fellowship. It was really great. Um, and we were on the little peninsula of Akateri itself, and we had five different little areas around the, around the base that actually were little, little bays. And um, I had a lady in the church who really wanted to be baptised, but she was terrified of water. She never went swimming, which is a bad place to be if you get posted to Akateri. She hated water, she never went swimming. She was terrified of going underwater. And so we decided to set a date for her baptism, and the church committed to praying for her, and we did. And on the morning of her baptism, as ever in Cyprus, it was a gloriously hot day, um, and we all went down to Buttons Bay, and um, I've been down there a few days beforehand and I cleared out an area in the bay that was deep enough to get her baptised in. And so she came down in the water and had all the membership of the church gathered round the side on the rocks. And they were singing as we went, she came into the water. And as we stood in the water, we could feel the fish nibbling at our feet. It was a lo- loads of fish. It was, um, but she had a great calmness because she trusted. She was courageous. She gave her fear to the Lord and I baptised her in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You know, baptism requires commitment. It requires will. And the disciples were gathered in the, in the, on the first day of the week as an act of will on the Lord's day to worship together. We need to use our wills as Christian disciples and allow the Holy Spirit to conquer our willfulness and to go the way that God is leading us. As, it, as the old saying goes, if he's not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. It is going on with the Lord. And what also is interesting that elsewhere he describes, Luke, um, Jesus describes uh, being filled with the Spirit as being clothed. He says in Luke 24 verse 49, Jesus said, I'm going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. You see, when you get up of the morning, you don't just stand there and the clothes magically 
materialize around your body, what do you have to do? You have to put the clothes on. That is, unless you are Wallace. I don't know about you, but that's not my experience when I wake up in the morning. I don't get dressed, no one dresses me. I have to dress myself. It requires will and willpower to sort out what you're gonna wear. And so it is with the Holy Spirit. We dress ourselves day by day with the Holy Spirit. We put the Holy Spirit on and ask God's power to come into our lives to enable us to live for him and to have the power to be the people that he wants us to be. And the thing is, is that power came on the day of Pentecost. The evidence of the power, first of all, was seen in the sound of wind. The word there literally in Greek, echo, echos, echo, um, said that the, the, the sound was reverberating from all areas. It was probably a terrifying experience. A mighty sound of wind. And we find many times in the Old Testament, wind is, 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 is part of a theophany, of an appearance of God. 2 Samuel, for example, 22, we hear that the valleys of the sea were exposed and the foundations of the earth lay bare at the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of breath from his nostrils. Ezekiel 13, verse 13 says, This is what the Lord says, In my wrath I will unleash a violent wind, and in my anger hailstones and torrents of rain will fall with destructive fury. When Elijah encounters the Lord, he goes out and the first thing he encounters is a mighty wind. And so a mighty wind came upon this public house in which these disciples were waiting upon the Lord. And then another terrifying evidence of God's existence was there too. Fire. Wind and fire. Two symbols we see time and time again in the Old Testament representing the presence of God. When Moses met with God on Mount Sinai, he encountered a burning bush. And God spoke out of the flames. The bush was on fire but was not consumed by the fire. And the people of Israel were led at night through the wilderness by a pillar of fire. Fire again is involved time again. God reveals himself to his people in wind and fire, these mighty elements that often bring change. And so the presence of God comes down upon his people, but doesn't come down to destroy them. He comes to anoint them. So flames of fire, literally told, sat upon the heads of his people, rather like fiery crowns. God is a powerful, mighty God. We should be fearful of him, but he comes in love and grace. That's seen in Jesus Christ. And so when he comes in the power of the Spirit to enable his Christians, he doesn't come to destroy you. He comes to sit upon you, to bless you, to clothe you, to empower you. And how does he do this? Well, if he's opening their wills, the next thing he does is opens their mouths, the opening of their mouths. Suddenly, these fearful fellows who've locked themselves away because they're terrified of the Jewish leaders, suddenly they become the biggest and loudest, most voracious individuals spreading the gospel than anyone. They're suddenly transformed. These quiet, timid mice are suddenly mighty evangelists. How? Because they're enabled by his spirit. We read about that in verse two, chapter 2 and verse 4. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. The Holy Spirit is sent as a gift upon Christians to enable them to be Christians, to enable you to be a disciple. 
The Holy Spirit is not the add-on, not a thing for the, convinc- the, 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 the lunatic fringe of the church. The Holy Spirit is not there so only those Christians who are really enthusiastic, who really want to take their faith seriously. The Holy Spirit is there for all of us to enable us to be Christians. We cannot be disciples properly unless we have the Holy Spirit to enable us to open our wills and to open our mouths. You see, first and foremost, God's Spirit is a missionary spirit. It's a missionary spirit. Any missionary who's ever gone to serve the Lord Jesus Christ in the world of us goes because they've been anointed by the Holy Spirit. Speak to a missionary and ask them. You know, it's not easy to leave your home. It's not easy to go to a foreign country to learn a language that's not your own. That's not easy. How do they do it? Well, we're not superheroes. They're people anointed by the Holy Spirit. People who take God seriously. And God enables them to overcome their fears. I'm sure you can talk to Eileen and and, and discover why she went to Japan and left her family here in Colchester for all those years because she was anointed with the Holy Spirit. He enabled her. And God enables us. He spends his spirits. But it doesn't come to make us all Billy Graham. That's one of the problems people have with being evangelists because they think, I haven't got the gift of evangelism. God doesn't expect you to have the gift of evangelism. He doesn't expect you to become like Billy Graham or Louis Palau or Reinhard Bonnke. He calls you simply to be a witness. And what's a witness? A witness tells their story. Do you like talking about yourself? Most people do. Do you like talking about yourself? Then tell others about yourself and how God has touched your lives and blessed your lives. That's what it means to be a witness, to tell your personal story. Your story is unique to you. No one else has it. How God has answered prayer in your life. How you've struggled at times. What God has done. How God called you, first of all. That's your story. When Jesus said to the disciples, you are my witnesses, he says to us, you are my witnesses. He doesn't expect you all to have mass congregations and to speak to thousands of people at a time. He just says, talk about me. Talk about me to your friends, to your family, to those around you at work. Talk about me. Share your story. General Patton, George Patton, during World War II, um, met a military governor in Sicily. And the military uh, governor was infusive in his praise for the, for the man and, and praised him for his, uh, his courage and his bravery. And the general replied to the, the Sicilian um, governor, he said, Sir, I am not a brave man. The truth is, I am an utter craven coward. I have never been within the sound of gunshot or in the sight of battle in my whole life that I was not so scared that I had sweat in the palm of my hands. General George Patton said that. Years later, when he wrote his autobiography and it was published, it contained one significant statement, and it was this. General Patton said, I learned very early in my life never to take counsel of my fears. I learned very early in my life never to take counsel of my fears. You know, I can speak personally. When you're in, in battle, in a situation of war, you will be scared. That doesn't mean you're a coward. It's, you're only a coward if you give in to those fears. You give in to those desires to run away and to desert and not do what you're called to do. Courage is overcoming your fears. 
Courage is recognizing that you're scared, but still doing what you believe is right because you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, because you are disciplined and because you are called to witness. You are called not to be great theologians, not to spend years at Bible college or get various degrees in theology. You're called simply to tell your story, to be a witness. The Holy Spirit came to open their wills. He came to open their mouths. And lastly, the Holy Spirit comes to open their lives. Open their lives. You see, being a disciple ultimately means to submit to the master. It requires submission of our will to God's will. The opening of our lives. Becoming a Christian requires asking him to control you. You see, they were only meant to remain in Jerusalem until they'd been empowered and clothed with the Holy Spirit. And then at that point, they were to go where? They were to go where God told them to go. They were to be moved by the Spirit. Jesus said in in Luke 24 and verse 47, Repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in the name of to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are my witnesses of these things. The mission began at Jerusalem. But it ends wherever God takes us, wherever God sends. See, they were to remain for a while, but when they were clothed, then they were to go. This is the essence of the command to them before Jesus went up to heaven. We call it the Great Commission, don't we? Luke, sorry, Luke, Luke, Mark, Matthew 28 and verses 19 and 20. So famous to all of us, so well known. Jesus said, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the end of the age. They were no longer to remain in Jerusalem. They were now to move out, to unlock the doors, and to move out and engage with the world. And the day of Pentecost was Jesus equipping his church. He doesn't call us to go and leave us weak and unempowered. He calls us to go and gives us the power. He gives us the strength, as well as the command. And God equips us all, but that still requires an act of will. It still requires us engaging, to being disciplined, to hear him speak and to go where he wants us to go. He gave them power, but they needed to obey the call. God called me as a young man of 19 years old, serving in Germany in the Royal Air Force, to follow him. He called me, my nickname was Sparky, there's me on the guard at RAF Larbrook, to follow him, and I went there from there to Glasgow, to a Bible college. There I met another young Christian disciple called Fiona Ross, and she became my wife. And he called both of us into Christian ministry. We set up a home together and we moved. Do you know how many times we've moved in 37 years of being married? How many times we've had to move around this world? We've moved 18 times in 37 years. We've lived in Glasgow, we lived in Paisley, we lived in London, Watford, Kidlington, Oxfordshire. We lived in for a while for five years in inner city Birmingham. We lived in Germany, in Osnabrück, in Larbrook, and later on in Lubecca. Three, um, eight years in Germany. We've lived in Colchester twice, once with the Paris, and more recently as a minister. We've lived in Cyprus, in Northern Ireland. We've lived on Salisbury Plain, in Bulford, for three and a half years. We've lived in Swindon, Preston, Edinburgh, and finally, most recently, back to Colchester. Do you know, that wasn't on a whim. 
That wasn't because we fancied moving around the world. That's because on all those occasions we felt God was moving us. God was sending us. Because we'd learned to listen and to open our lives to the call of God. Pentecost is all about God equipping us for mission. And each one of you as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ can have power because God doesn't call you to do something he doesn't enable you to do. He wants to open your will to him, to open your mouth to speak about him, to open your life to the adventure of walking with him. What an adventure my life has been following the Lord Jesus Christ, going to places I never expected to go because he calls us. And he empowers us, enables us. Are you hearing his call this morning? Or are you still locked down in Jerusalem with the doors fairly well padlocked and shackled to keep the world out because you're fearful? Fearful of the world. Fearful of opening your mouth. Fearful of obeying the Lord Jesus. Fearful of where he may send you. You know, as a young Christian, it took me years to really understand this because I was terrified that God was going to send me as a missionary. And where was he going to send me to? I believed he was going to send me to work in Alaska with the Eskimos. And why was that? Why would God send Cole Maynard to work in Alaska to work with the Eskimos? It's because I hated the cold. And I felt God would only send me to a place to work where it would be, it would be really a cross-carrying experience. Something that would be difficult because that's what God's like. God's not like that. I had to learn, it took me years to realise that God actually uses your gifts. He uses your interests. He uses who you are. So I had a church in Oxford and God called me into ministry, Baptist ministry. And I had a church in Oxford and then a church in inner city Birmingham. And then God called me back to my roots, having spent four years in the military. He sent me to serve as, as a chaplain for 21 years in the military. Because I love being in the military. I love the environment. He sent me to somewhere where I would naturally fit in. And God uses your natural gifts, your natural abilities. It's not a scary thing to be a disciple of Jesus. It just requires trust and faith and being disciplined. Let me encourage you to submit your wills to the Lord Jesus. To open your mouths to declare his praise. To open your life to the possibilities of the adventure that he wants you to travel on. Because he calls each one of us and he equips each one of us to be his disciples and to be his missionaries in the world in which we live. Amen.